Well, good morning, Living Stones Church family and those that are joining us by uh, live stream and YouTube and other formats. We're just glad that you're here. And I want to just remind us that today is Pentecost Sunday, and some of you may wonder, what is that? Well, Pentecost was actually a Jewish festival. There were two harvest seasons in Israel's economy, and one of them, at the end of one of those harvest seasons, you move from the Passover to the day of Pentecost, and it was a day of celebration. People, uh, Jewish people would gather in Jerusalem, and they would celebrate with thanksgiving and praise. And it was on that day, which is now the birthday of the church, because it was on the day of Pentecost that God's Spirit came upon the disciples and empowered them to be witnesses around the world. What an exciting thing that was. And so we're going to pray today that God's Spirit would move supernaturally uh, in our hearts and lives this morning. And while we're going to, before we do that and I pray about that, I also want to take a moment to congratulate all of the graduates from high school, university, uh, that have you know, work so diligently and are ready to move on into the next stage of their life. So congratulations, graduates. I know it may be a little disappointing. You couldn't celebrate it the way most years were able to celebrate, but I trust that God will redeem the situation and make wonderful your life as you have achieved this milestone. So we want to just rejoice in that. Now, we have a handful of people in our church where we're allowed to have less than 50. There's a few of us here today. I'm going to have you stand. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer, and we're going to ask God to do a powerful work, even as they did on the day of Pentecost and then later on in Cornelius' house. So, Father, I come to you right now, and as we recognize the amazing gift that you are, Father. You always give of yourself. And so when Jesus, you left the planet, you said that you'd come back again. But meanwhile, you said you'd send another comforter. And now the Holy Spirit has invaded our planet and he lives within the hearts of believers. And I pray, Lord, that today we will experience the fullness of your presence in the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As a matter of fact, as we look at a text this morning, we're gonna realize that we're commanded to be full of the Spirit. And so I pray, Father, that you will hear our cry, that the desire and longing of our heart is to be in your presence, and that becomes a reality through the work of your Spirit. So Lord, I pray today that you'd fill us anew and afresh, and we thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, you may be seated. Back in the early, uh, the late uh, 19th century, 1890s, a young man heard a great missionary statement, statesman by the name of A.J. Gordon, who delivered a famous series of lectures on the Holy Spirit in missions. And before the series ended, a young pastor by the name of Roland Bingham was praying that the Holy Spirit would call him and allow him to serve somewhere where there was a great need in our world. He went on with his pastorate in the countryside near Toronto, Ontario, and the months passed without a clear answer to his prayer. And then he happened to a, a address a small morning meeting in the city of Toronto where an elderly lady with a distinct Scottish accent invited him for lunch and introduced herself as Mrs. Gowans, and she was a widower. And during and after lunch, she told him of her son, Walter, who had been certain that he was called to take the gospel to the neediest country he could find. And he had literally poured over the map and studied the statistics until he found one vast area in Africa that impressed upon him almost that it had 
no witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so from coast to coast, south of the Sahara Desert and north of the rainforest, laid a great population belt known in those days as the Sudan. And before Roland Bingham left Mrs. Gowan, he knew in his heart that God had answered his prayer and that he must join her son in that ministry there in the Sudan. None had dared go inland, but before Bingham and two other companions could start, he contracted malaria, which nearly cost him his life. He remained on the coast to men and provide a base for supplies where the other two young men went inland. And they both died within a year of each other of that dreaded disease, malaria. Roland Bingham returned to North America to find more assistance. Five years later, he returned to the Sudan. He was now accompanied by two other young men. Once again, he contracted malaria and immediately had to go back to the coast. The other two young men became discouraged and gave up. Seven years after Bingham had set out with such sure hope from Mrs. Gowan's home, his mission seemed like a mere mockery. Walter Gowans had this, by this time had died as well, and Mrs. Gowans' response to her son's death was interesting. She said, I would rather have Walter go to the Sudan and die there all alone than to have him remain at home and disobey the Lord. Roland Bingham was equally determined to obey whether it led to ridicule or death, and so the next seven years saw a growing mission in the Sudan. More missionaries died, and it was a struggle to see people come to faith in Christ. But when he died, Bingham died in 1943, there was an incredibly dynamic missions with local churches, and the ministry had, was flourishing in the Sudan. And even amidst persecution and difficulty, these churches represent a power, powerful witness of Jesus Christ. So how did this all come about? Well, because... One person responded to and understood the will of God and obeyed God's call for his life. Now, what is God's will for each of our lives should actually be our greatest concern. So what would motivate a young man like Roland Bingham to risk his life over and over again in such a difficult place in the late 1890s? Well, we may not be called to be missionaries in that sense and go to another part of the world, but we're all called to bring the good news of Jesus into our current place where we live, work, and play. And so the secret to that kind of a life is really the sense of God's Spirit living and empowering our lives. And so I want to just focus in a little bit this morning, and my, my title of my sermon is Being Filled with the Holy Spirit. In a series of lectures on early Christianity, the experience of the divine, uh, New Testament scholar Luke Timothy Johnson says, some scholars are reluctant to acknowledge the vitality or the validity of religious experience in general. In other words, they just look at religion as a, something that's intellectual. Much less the religious experience that was the beginning of Christianity. You know, the first Christians made claims about their significance that are actually out of proportion to their actual situation in the world. In other words, they were a tiny little group of people, but they believed that they had a kingdom that would endure and grow and transform the world. Isn't that great? As a matter of fact, they were saved they were empowered, they were transforming agents, they were right-siding the world, they were having an amazing impact, and so the claim to the experience of power is connected to the central symbol and, the, and a basic conviction, and that central symbol is actually a person, it's the person of the Holy Spirit. 
They were literally infused with the power of God. Now, New Testament scholar Gordon Fee brings out an interesting thought. He uses the idea that the Holy Spirit and the idea of power are interchangeable concepts in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, you know, when you look at who God is, God is almighty. He's all-powerful. And so when the Holy Spirit comes on the scene, he brings the power of God into the situation. So the work of the Holy Spirit is experiential. In other words, it's more than just an idea. And sometimes in Christianity, we've had a lot of people who have gotten mere assent to the truth. But that's not true Christianity. True Christianity has to be experienced. True Christianity is the work of the Holy Spirit that comes into our lives. So it's not just a dry confession of faith that Jesus is Lord. It's not just about something that happened in the past. It's not just something that, you know, we believe that Jesus lived, died, rose again, and will come again, but that we believe that God is ever-present. He's here in our midst in the person and work of the Holy Spirit, and he's actively living in our lives, and he's making a difference within us. Now, the Christian life uh, is an empowered life. And you and I can maintain equilibrium or balance in life's greatest tests. We can find meaning, we can find purpose, we can find joy and hope that literally lifts us beyond the challenge that we could be experiencing in our lives at the moment. The Christian life is not a problem-free life. It's not an absence from trouble. But rather it's a life where the power of Christ is greater than our problems. I mean, I think that's great that there's something beyond what you and I can handle, but it's the work of God dwelling within us. And so the book of Ephesians deals with a number of significant issues facing the life of the Christian. Now, I've been doing a series from the book of Proverbs, and I've been trying to show there's a contrast between those who live wisely and those who live foolishly, those who live for God and those who don't live for God, those that are you know, fearing God and those who don't fear God. And it's interesting that this wisdom literature moves right into the New Testament, and we can see that even Paul is filled with these ideas in his mind. And so here we're gonna see in the book of Ephesians, we're going to look at a small uh, paragraph in chapter 5, beginning in verse 15 down to verse 21. And what we find out is that Paul is going to help us understand how to maintain healthy relationships. Anybody need to know how to live with people well? Does anybody need to know that stuff? Isn't that a great thing to learn how to maintain healthy relationships? How to, how to have a healthy home life? How to actually uh, live with unity and purpose and love in the church family? How to you know, explore what it means to be a child of God in our workplace. How we can live a holy life in an unholy world. Isn't that a challenge sometimes? Where we don't have to conform to the values of our culture. It speaks how we can overcome strongholds of sin in our lives. How many believe that there's a power greater than our sin? That's the power of the Holy Spirit who can deliver us from our addictions. We're gonna see that as we look at this text today. And it's a life that produces love and joy and hope and peace and self-control and perseverance and humility, all beautiful virtues that can flow as a result of the person and work of the Holy Spirit inside of us. Now, let me just read our text this morning. It's found in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15. 
He says there, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Isn't that interesting? I'm, I'm reminding us now, book of Proverbs, it's all about wisdom, how to live wisely. Here he's saying, listen, I'm gonna teach you how to live wisely. I'm gonna teach you how to live a godly life. I'm gonna teach you so that you can avoid the pitfalls and the snares that attend to the human uh, situation. He says, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Folks, the days have always been evil. There's always been a challenge. I could, you know, I, I love history. I study history. I've noticed there's times that have been far worse than the time we're living in right now. There's always been evil times. How can we live in wisdom? How can we live an empowered life in the midst of the challenges that are before us? And then he says, therefore, do not be foolish or do not be uh, wicked or do not be unwise. In other words, don't be ungodly. That's what he's talking about here. Do not be foolish, but understand. See, now there's a cognitive thing. We're gonna get to there. You know, my, my two points are really, how can we live with experience and how can we live with understanding? He says, don't be uh, unwise, he says, but rather understand what the Lord's will is. And then he says something very interesting. This is the verse I'm really zeroing in on this morning. Do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. You know, I think it's really fascinating that we're in the middle of this COVID-19 thing, and one of the things that they found that was absolutely necessary was to leave the, bar, uh, uh, to leave the liquor outlets open. They, were, they considered this an essential service. Isn't that interesting? But here, we read in the scriptures, non-essential. It's a non-essential thing. It says, rather, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. I have to honestly say, I, I'm making a lot of music in my heart. It's been a, a tremendous challenge to not sing. You know, how hard is that to repress, you know, to verbalize my expression of adoration and praise to God? But I can tell you, on the inside, I was singing. On the inside, I was exploding. I mean, I, I just, I think it's so exciting that we can worship our God. It says here, sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So I'm gonna look at basically some essentials to living out the Christian life. And I wanna look at two key ingredients or elements that are critical to living this empowered life. And the first one is simply that the Christian life is experiential in nature. In other words, it's an experience. It's not just an intellectual ascent. The person of the Godhood that activates our experience with God is the Holy Spirit. He's the one who makes Jesus Christ real to us. You and I need the Holy Spirit in order to be born again of the Spirit to be born again, to know God, to be born from above, to experience the life of God. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who makes the word of God come alive in our heart. Do you ever have those moments when the word of God just explodes on the inside? There's so much excitement. That's the Holy Spirit activating God's word, speaking into our lives. He's the one who empowers us to live a holy or a separated life for God, a courageous life. It's, he's the one that gives us heart. How many know that in, in life, there's so many discouraging moments? You ever been discouraged? 
You know, actually, that's just a loss of heart. But it's the Holy Spirit that empowers us so that we can live a courageous, faith-filled lives. It's the Holy Spirit that empowers people to do things that when we read about in the Bible, we say, how in the world could they do that? How could David run up and face a giant when everybody else is quaking in fear? Because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's how he did it. He didn't do it in his own strength, folks. See, we read these stories and we think, wow, he's an amazing person. I'm going, no, he's empowered by the spirit of the living God. And when you and I, like David or these other biblical characters, are empowered by God's spirit, something happens inside of our lives. We begin to do things. We begin to be affected in a very powerful way. You know, it goes on here to say, in our text, he speaks, he starts out with a negative, and then he moves to the positive. He says, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Why did he even bring that up? Well, because drunkenness is a condition of an altered experience. How many know that's true? That when people are inebriated, when they're drunk, they're actually altered in their abilities to function. They're impaired in some sort of manner. It actually lowers our inhibitions. Do you realize that? We're not thinking clearly. We begin to make decisions that are very unwise. They're actually irrational decisions. We get into vehicles and drive off when we, we don't have the ability to, to control what we're doing. And many times it leads to great tragedy. We can talk about impaired driving. You know, how does that happen? That's because someone has been altered in their state of mind. How many people have done things when they were drunk that if they were sober, they'd have never done those things? Isn't that true? And you know, so many people, they actually abuse alcohol. I'm just gonna talk about alcohol. I'm talking about drugs. I'm talking about anything that impairs and alters our state of mind. Why, do, why does that happen? Why do people even do those things? Why are people even self-medicating? Because they want to feel better. But isn't it ironic that alcohol is actually a depressant? Hmm, Interesting. It says, do not be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. What is debauchery? Well, Webster defines it as an extreme indulgence on the part of one's appetite. One translation interprets the Greek text. The Greek word is asotia, or excess. It, it translated, don't be drunk with wine, which leads to excess. Kenneth Weiss explains asotia as nothing of a saving quality about it, but rather a destructive one. The word is generally used to express the idea of an abandoned, debauched, and prolific life. It's a life that is utterly shameful, immoral, and recklessly extravagant. It's the story that Jesus described in the prodigal. The son goes out and he lives that kind of a life, an excessive life, and he squanders his inheritance. It is a dehumanizing life. It squanders away a person's talents, resources, and time which God has given to each one of us. And how many people have lived that kind of a life and a wasted life it's been? What a, what a tragedy. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a pastor for many years, but he was a medical doctor long before he became a pastor, and he writes about this text. He says, take up any book on pharmacology and look up alcohol, and you will always find that it is classified among the depressants. It is not a stimuli. What alcohol does is this, it knocks out those higher centers so that the more primitive elements in the brain come up and take control, and a person feels better temporarily. 
They lose their sense of fear. They, they lose their sense of discrimination, and they lose their power to assess. Alcohol merely knocks out these higher centers and releases a more instinctive, primitive element. The person believes that they're being stimulated, but what is really true of them is that they become more animalistic, and the control over themselves has been diminished. Isn't that kind of tragic? The Apostle Paul then places the work of the Holy Spirit in direct opposition to this drunken, altered state. He says here, be filled with the Spirit. You know, in the Greek tense, it's actually this continuous tense. It's a command, continuously being filled with the Spirit. So it's not a one-time experience when we come to Christ and the Holy Spirit's at work and makes Christ real to us or we're filled with the Spirit and we express spiritual gifts. This is, it's more than that. It's living in an altered condition, in, in altered in the sense that you and I are enhanced and enriched by the presence of God dwelling within our lives. It's an awareness of God in our lives. Now, this is our responsibility. We're commanded. We must avail ourselves of this fullness of God's spirit in our lives in order to be and order to do what God wants us to accomplish in us and then through us. We must yield or submit ourselves to God, pray and ask that God would do this amazing work within us. I love the way Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes this spirit-filled life. He says, Christianity gives a person a new life. It is not merely negative, mechanical. It's not just morality that dulls the soul and robs it of its life and vitality. It is not just not, it's not even a list of do's and don'ts. The apostle says, by using this comparison, drunk on wine or filled with the spirit, he thunders at us this tremendous fact that the Christian life is not a negative life, a mere absence of evil and sin. No, Christianity is stimulating, exhilarating, and thrilling. I like that. You know, not, there needs to be a little pizzazz to our lives. There needs to be a little enthusiasm. Matter of fact, that word enthusiasm literally means God breathed into us. How many know we should be excited about our faith in God? And if we're not excited about our faith in God, there's something not quite right within our soul. We need to say, God, come and invade our lives. I mean, just imagine for a minute the one whom the universe cannot contain is invading our space. The presence of the greatest person on the entire planet is with us and living within us. Now, if we can't get excited about that, this is the most important person ever, and he's wanting to spend time with us. How in the world can we not get excited about that? I suppose some people, I don't know what it takes to get them going, but I'll tell you, it's exciting. I think it's a life filled with hope, it's a life filled with joy, self-control. It's a liberating life. It's not controlled by selfish desires, but it's filled with loving, self-giving expression towards God and towards others. Let me move on to my second and only other point. The second element that is essential for living the Christian life is cognitive in nature. Now, I know it's a big word. Some of you know what it means. Some of you may not. Cognitive just means intellectual, the ability to understand so it's not only an emotional, it's not only an, I don't even think emotional, I think it's experiential, but it's also reflective and the ability to understand and know some things. 
There's a desire to learn. There's a, there's a heart to be teachable. It's not an irrational life. Now, so often our culture thinks that, you know, we're Christians. We, we, you know, our brains kicked out when Christ kicked in. I, I'm telling you, that's so wrong in its understanding. I would argue that you aren't even thinking at the highest possible level possible until Christ invades your life, and all of a sudden, now you're moving to a whole new level, and your thinking changes. I'm not saying that you're better than other people. I'm going to say you're better than what you were. God's going to do something inside of your heart and mind. The reality is that we have a desire to understand who God is. We have a desire to know what his ways are and to walk in those ways and to make a difference. All of a sudden, the sphere of our life just exploded because I'm gonna say from my own personal experience, before I knew Christ, it was a very self-centered, self-contained. I was at the middle. It was about me life. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes in. I tell you, when Jesus comes in, you gotta make room. And the eye has to take a step back. And all of a sudden, God is at the center of your life. And all of a sudden, life takes on the right perspective. It's not all about us. All of a sudden, it's about him. It's about what he wants. It's about his desires. And all of a sudden, your life begins to expand and your world begins to expand in front of you. It's not just about you and your family. It's about you and a whole bunch of other people. It's not just about Canada. It becomes about the world. It's not just about this person that's similar to me. It's about all kinds of people and some totally dissimilar to me. It expands you in so many ways. We see from Paul's warning that we must be wise. He contrasts that with being unwise or foolish. He's calling for understanding. In verse 15, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. He's challenging us to live in wisdom. And that's what I've been preaching in the last number of weeks from Proverbs. Then he goes on in verse 17, therefore do not be foolish. Don't be wicked. Don't be ungodly. You know, don't be a mocker or scoffer. You rather understand what the Lord's will is. All of a sudden, God's will becomes important to us. What does God think about this? What is God's viewpoint on these situations? You know, I'll be honest. I really could care less about what a lot of people think about a lot of things, but I deeply care what God thinks about these things because I think God is smarter than human beings. I think God's been around a lot longer. He's got a better insight into how this thing should all work. He's the creator, and we're all accountable to him and we're the ones who have rebelled against him as a culture and we're the ones that are suffering as a result to know God to know his will how powerful is that so what happens when we're full of the spirit Martin Lloyd-Jones argues that the intellect emotions and the will are all stimulated after every great revival which you know what is a revival I, I wrote my dissertation on this. A revival is really an outpouring, a fresh outpouring of the Spirit. And after we have this encounter with God, something dynamic happens. And here, a desire to learn intensifies. He writes, history proves that a desire for education always follows a spiritual revival. Isn't that interesting? It always follows that. It happened at the Reformation. It happened after the Puritan Awakening. It happened even more strikingly after the Evangelical Awakening of 200 years ago. And then he says this, there were those besotten, drunken miners and others in the Midlands and in the north roundabout Bristol. Suddenly they were converted by the power of the Holy Spirit and they began to clamor for schools and wanted to be able to read. The Holy Spirit stimulates the minds. And we find this as well in Scripture. You know, after the day of Pentecost, 
they all began to gather together. Look what it says here in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You know, that word devoted in the Greek language means they were like addicted. You know, instead of being addicted to the wrong things, they were now addicted to the right things. They wanted to learn about who God is. They wanted to understand who Jesus is. They wanted to understand the implications of that in their personal lives. They wanted to see how that worked out in their family life, how that would work out in their relationship to other people, to government, to schools, to the workplace. All of those things come into play. So what does the will of the Lord here look like specifically in the context in which I'm reading? Well, look at verses 19 through 21. He says there, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to the God and Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So first of all, we have spirit-filled speaking, you know, what do we speak about? You know, I, I could sit here and we could talk about, you know, the gift of tongues. You know, you're full of the Holy Spirit. We saw that in Acts 2 and Acts 10, Acts 19. Keep going down. But you know what? I think this is even more than that. This means that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I've noticed that you can tell when people are in love with Jesus. You can tell by the way they talk. You can tell by what they're interested in. You can tell by their desires. What is in them comes out of them. You know, and people that are really excited about God, who do they talk about? God, you know? Hey, have you ever seen a young couple, you know? They're, they're just, you know, excited about getting to know each other. When you come up and start talking to one of them, what are they going to talk about? The other person. They're excited about that person. Yeah, and that's the way it should be. We should be that excited about our Lord and our Savior. Here we are told to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This would suggest a context of corporate worship. We are to be addressing the Lord. Those under the control of the Holy Spirit will have a song in their hearts. Isn't that great? You know, do you have a song in your heart? Do you just like to sing unto the Lord, just praise him, just adore him? You know, secondly, we see that they'll have an attitude of gratitude. Oh, I love this. I love this. It says, always giving thanks, you know? Uh, you think about that. You ever met some people? You know, some people are just grumblers. There's some people, all they do is grumble and complain. You know, you talk to them. They're always negative. They're on that frequency. Boy, is that ever edifying, right? Does that ever really lift people's spirits, you know? They're always, they're never content at whatever's going on. They always can find something wrong with it. You ever met people like that? How many say that really elevates you? That really lifts you up. That really inspires you. No, it's crushing, it's negative, it's heavy, it puts you down. But listen to what the scriptures say here. You know, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18, he says, Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, you know, here in Ephesians, it says give thanks for, for everything. But let me just make a fine distinction. I don't think we give thanks for evil, okay? But I think we can give thanks in spite of evil. You see the difference? In everything, give thanks. In other words, our attitude towards life should be thanksgiving. Now, I love that story of Paul and Silas. You know, they're preaching the gospel, 
and uh, they run into problems. People don't want to listen to it. They, some, some of them lost their ability to make money on a, a little girl who was telling fortunes, and they were thrown in jail. They were beaten. Their Roman citizens weren't allowed to do that, so their rights were violated. How many know when people's rights are violated, they get upset and angry? I mean, we're looking at what's happening in the United States, right? People, you know, do you think rendering evil for evil is the answer to problems? Of course not. But what did Paul and Silas do? They're in jail. Their, their backs are bleeding. They're in shackles against the wall. This is cruel and unusual punishment, folks. You know, right? And what are they doing? They're singing praises to God. They're rejoicing in the jailhouse. You know, I love this story. And then the jailhouse rocks. See, I don't know where Alvis got his song from, but this was the first jailhouse rock I read about, right? Place is shaken by an earthquake. Their shackles are open. The doors are knocked open. The jailer thinks, wow, I'm in trouble now. My prisoners have escaped. In Roman understanding, as a soldier, if you lost your prisoner, you would be executed. He thought about committing suicide. Paul could see him. He says, no, we're all here. And he leads that man to Christ. Just think about it. An evil thing happens, and out of it, in the midst of uh, uh, Paul and Silas praising God, God turns that evil situation around for good, and an entire household comes to faith in God. Isn't that beautiful? And then a church is established in that community. God knows what he's doing. Can I just tell you, God knows what he's doing? Does God know what he's doing? Yes, of course he knows what he's doing. So we should be full of the spirit and we should be full of gratitude and thanksgiving in our heart. You know, a lot of people are walking around right now, you know, this terrible thing, you know, we can't do this. We're focusing in on what we can't do. Why don't we focus in on what we can do? This is a great time to follow the Lord. This is a great hour to worship our God. This is a great time to seek his face. This is a great time to be full of the spirit of God, right? I mean, you want to be world changers? you got to be full of the Holy Ghost. You want to have your attitude change? Begin to worship God. Begin to praise God. Begin to be full of gratitude towards God. How many know if you're focused in on God, you can't focus in on your problems? See, our problem in our culture today, we're so problem-oriented. We're so focused on our problem. We're just looking at all the problems in our world, and it's so negative that we all become negative. It's getting real quiet in here. Lastly, it says, living a life of mutual submission. I love what John Stott reminds us of. He says, then he goes on, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, first of all, this is not an imperative. It sounds like it in English, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, but this is a participle. Now, I am not a brilliant grammatician. I am not, but I'll just say this much. There's a difference between a command and a participle. Actually, the only command in this text in the Greek language is be filled with the Spirit. Isn't that amazing? And the rest of what you're reading is actually the outcome of being full of the Spirit. So when you're full of the Spirit, you're going to be able to submit to God, and you're going to be able to submit to others. You know why you can do that? Because being unsubmitted means you're trying to remain in control. But you see, when God is in control, you're not. When God is in control, I'm not in control. And so I'm happy letting God be in control. 
You know, isn't, isn't it liberating to know that when God is in control, I can relax? How many here would like to just, you know, kick back and relax and not worry about all the problems? How many say, I'm up for that, Pastor? And so the answer is, be full of the Spirit. And then you can walk around singing and happy, and people are going, hey, you're not even dealing with reality. Oh, yes, I am. I know who's in charge. God is in control. Hallelujah. God is in control of my world. God is in control of this crazy world. Isn't that great? How many know that when you know someone greater than yourself is in control of the situation, you can kind of relax a little bit? I can sit back, you know, he's driving this bus. I can relax. I'm a passenger. I'm just moving along. I'm going to enjoy the scenery now. I don't have to worry about driving the vehicle through these mountains. I can just relax and enjoy the ride. See the big difference? He says, such are the wholesome results of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. They're all concerning relationships. If we're filled with the Spirit, we're going to have a harmonious relationship with God. We're going to be worshiping Him with joy and thanksgiving. And to each other, we're going to be speaking and submitting to one another. In brief, Spirit-filled believers love God and love each other, which is hardly surprising since the fruit, since the fruit of the Spirit is love. And that's what John tells us. How do you know people are Christians? What's the evidence? That we have love one for another. Isn't that amazing? See how it all, how many go, it all fits. It all comes together. So what am I trying to tell us? We need to be full of the Spirit. John Stott says, be filled is not a tentative proposal. That's an authoritative command. We have no more liberty to avoid this responsibility than the many other which surrounded in the book of Ephesians. To be filled with the Spirit is, ob is uh, obligatory. It is obligatory, not optional. To be filled with the Spirit or to not be filled with the Spirit. To not be filled with the Spirit is disobedience. It's a state of rebellion against God. It's the idea that somehow I can live the Christian life apart from Him. I can live apart from His indwelling, empowering presence. And can I just say, it cannot be done. All you become is a moralist. You become a Pharisee. We can all have the right information, but we lack the energizing power to live life apart from being filled with the Spirit. We will be powerless then. In some sense, it's a form of idolatry. We're trusting in ourselves rather than trusting in God. How can we impact our world in our own human energy? It's not going to happen, I'll tell you. But when we're filled with the Spirit, it's amazing what God can do with us. He can take us weak little vessels and stun the world. You know, Peter and John, when the religious leaders saw these guys, they go, who in the world are these people? They're turning our city, you know, right around. And they recognized they were unschooled and unlearned men, but they had been with Jesus. Isn't that the right answer? Can I just tell you, if you're hanging with the right people, they're going to rub off on you. If you're hanging with the wrong people, they're going to rub off on you. So hang with the right people. And I'm going to tell you, the right person to hang with is God himself. So you want to be a wise person, you better hang with the wisest person. And that's God himself. So why don't we stand this morning as we're going to cry out to God. You say, how in the world can I be filled with the Spirit? Well, listen to what Luke tells us in chapter 11 and verse 13. He says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Isn't that beautiful? God says, you know what I'm telling you? I want to come and invade your space. But you got to let me. You got to desire me. 
you got to open your heart to me. you got to make space for me. you got to make room in your life for me. And God says, if you will do that, I will invade your space. I will hang with you. And if you're really interested and you want to have a really exciting life, why don't you stop telling God what he needs to be doing for you and why don't you need to say, what do I need to be doing for you, God? In other words, what are we doing, God, today? What are you up to, God? How can I join you in this amazing experience of walking with you? How can you use me, a very weak vessel, to confound those that are strong? How can you use me? Maybe I don't think I'm that smart, but God, you can use the, a, a very average person to confound the wise. God says, I like doing that. I like to use the weak things of this world, the broken things of this world, because when God does that, who gets the credit? Only God can do these things. Isn't that amazing? How many would like to see God use you in a more significant way? Anybody up for that? Anybody say, I want God to use me this week. I want to make space in my week for God. I want to ask God to just fill my life with his Holy Spirit. I want to have a happier home. Well, if you open your heart to God, say, Lord, help me to be so full of your spirit. Then I can live a life where it's not about me. It's not about my rights. I don't have to defend myself. I can trust that, you know, you're going to work on my spouse. I don't need to change them. How many know changing your spouse is impossible? Anybody figured that out? Remember years ago, a lady came to my office. She goes, Pastor, I can't do it anymore. I've been married to this guy. He's an idiot. He's a jerk. She was going on and on and ranting and raving. I said, yeah, and you've been trying to change him all those years. And she goes, yeah, and he's not getting it. I said, maybe that wasn't your job. I said, you've worked so hard, all you've done is alienate him. I said, why don't you stop? Why don't you stop doing that? Instead of running away, why don't you just entrust him to God? Why don't you just do what God wants you to do and let God do what he wants to do in your husband's life? You know, within a few months, I got this beautiful card from this woman. She said, Pastor, our whole marriage has been changed. Our whole life is different. I just listened to what you said, and it's changed our relationship. I stopped trying to change him. I thought, good. That's God's job. Amen? How many here are saying, I'm ready for a spirit to invade my life? Let's pray this morning. So Father, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you that today is the day of Pentecost, but Lord, that's just not a historical event. That's an ever-present event in our life as believers. Your command to us is that we are to be continuously filled with your spirit. And I pray today that the Holy Spirit of the living God would so fill our hearts and minds that we would be overflowing with joy and hope and peace and grace and love and mercy and kindness and gentleness. Lord, I just pray today that you will take us weak vessels and you would so empower our lives that things would begin to occur in our lives that, humanly speaking, seem impossible. But, Lord, giants would 
come crashing down. Walled cities would fall. I just pray today that miracles will begin to transpire in and through my brothers and sisters' lives right now, Father, in the name of Jesus. I'm praying right now, Father, as people are hearing this message. It's not just a message of a pastor, Lord. It's the word of the living God. And I pray into the souls of people that the seed would be planted and would germinate and would bear amazing fruit in the hearts and lives of people. It would change marriages right now. It would change workplaces right now, Father. I believe it's going to happen. I believe, Lord, you're going to transform our uh, mundane, frustrated experience and create an exhilarating, exciting, and dynamic life because you are now in control and in charge of our lives. I pray our attitudes would change. I pray from this day forward, I pray that you'd move us from a negative mindset or problem orientation. I pray right now that we would move away from that and that you would fill us with a heart of thanksgiving and gratitude, Father, that in everything we would give thanks. We would be praying continually and thanking you every moment of every day, that there would be a heart filled with joy and thanksgiving, that when people would see us, oh God, they would go, what are you on? I've had that experience where people are saying, Pastor, what are you taking? What are you on? I'm on Jesus. I'm on the Holy Spirit. I'm in an altered state. I don't have to go out and buy uh, a a, a drug in order to alter my state and to start self-medicating because of the pain. Lord, I believe right now that you can change the broken, hurting, wounded places in our soul. I pray right now that you would deliver us from resentment and unforgiveness right now in the name of Jesus. I pray your spirit would now come as a balm into our souls and begin to minister life in that place in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. May you walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.